Hello and welcome to The Intersection of Things, a podcast about technology and how it's changing our lives from an intersectional feminist perspective. I am one half of the pod, Marianella. And I'm the other half, Ruth. Uh, Listeners, this episode is a little bit different from the other ones because, Ruth, what anniversary is happening? It's our two-year birthday! Two years since we launched the podcast! Yeah, we've been at this now for two years, which is kind of strange, but kind of cool. This would be episode number, what, 22? 22. Yeah, so um, in order to kind of celebrate a little bit and share stuff with you, we were thinking of uh, having a, how you call it, Ruth, like an interview one another. We want to like ask each other questions. Um, We always enjoy a lot how when guests come in, uh, we have the opportunity to ask questions from experts through this like kind of I'm hesitating to say unique but like this unique corner of for example for example let me just put this when we're talking about war a lot of people talk about you know capitalism and and stuff like that but we get to ask questions like how have the like mythology around war changed now that digital is part of warfare um you know we get a little bit philosophical a little bit how you call it Ruth yeah I think philosophical reflective curious I think one of the things that I've really enjoyed about the podcast is that we're not trying to have perfect answers to everything, but we get to be really, really curious and ask those questions that we're just like, hmm, yeah, but but what about this? And it's a space to just think about things a bit more deeply. Yeah, I really enjoy that too. Like more than being an authority on something, it's more like let's be curious together about this and see this very interesting phenomenon from this other angle and just, you know, explore. So yeah, in order to kind of bring a little bit of that and a little bit of behind the scenes of how Ruth and I chat to make these episodes, we're just going to ask questions. We're going to have a bit of a Q&A. So roll interview music. <laughs> Hi, Ruth. Thank you for being my guest. <laughs> Thanks, Marinella. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for being my guest. Yeah, so I, you know, I would. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so you're a veteran of the internet. You're not old, but you've been on the internet for quite some time. And I wanted to ask you, what has surprised you both positively, negatively, about how you've witnessed the internet and tech progress in the last couple of decades? Hmm. Okay, I think what surprised me negatively i'm gonna i'm gonna start negative first and then get to the good stuff negatively is probably all the stuff about the willingness to surveil each other i didn't really see that coming i think a lot of the stuff that i was working on basically a decade ago to do with government surveillance and corporate surveillance was kind of the exact power structure that i might have predicted with the internet with technology but then Right about that time, people were really raising flags around domestic abusers using technology to track their partners. And there was more and more kind of awareness that that was a problem and responding to it. And yet here we are a decade later, the same stuff we were raising flags about is now being sold for parents to surveil their kids and neighbors to surveil each other. And I didn't really see that coming. I didn't see that willingness to watch each other in the same way that companies watch us and governments yep. watch us. So that's that's the less fun stuff. I mean, one only needs to go into like Reddit and you know that am I the asshole subreddit. And a lot of them are just like, hey, I'm tracking my kids and they found out and uh, now they're mad at me. Am I the asshole? And everybody's like, yes. yes. Um, so. 
But yeah. yeah. I mean, there's also entire Reddit forums that are for kids being like, how can I get around my parents watching me? And that story about a girl who had put a jumper, had got a jumper specially printed that said, I do not consent to being photographed so that she could wear it for her mum taking photos of her and putting them on Instagram and monetizing yeah. that. A different problem. Yep. Um, but the, the kids know what's up. And does that tap into the positive surprises? <laughs> yeah, um, I think... So one of the positive things that I think I love is just to do with the amount of cool art I get to see on the internet. I love the amount of communities built around art that I see. Like, I'm talking about things like webcomics or, like, art commissioning, kind of, like, indie gaming and the way people kind of can come together to create games like that. Like, a lot of the stuff we talked about last episode, I know I'm sort of repeating myself, but I do think all of those communities that are, like, the modern communities, yeah, and, like, Patreons, and everything that's about people who get to just make stuff, create it, connect with their fans who otherwise wouldn't have. I think that although there are a lot of people who have, you know, power and fame at the very top on Instagram and YouTube, there is still a real thing where you can just make stuff and put it out there, kind of what we're doing. And I just think that is still really, really cool. And I think I've been surprised by how much that has lasted. There have been lots of corporations trying to take control of it but actually there's still so much just grassroots people making things and connecting and i love that i deliberately follow people like that and i get to see beautiful things all the time on my instagram and tumblr and youtube and that still gives me a lot of joy oh yeah same okay so my question for you so i had a similar similar vein but maybe like slightly different without the similar vein no surprises What's your one internet pet hate and one pet love? The thing, the thing is, I do not. Um, I when I when I was thinking about this question, I basically said like the one thing that I hate, but it's not a pet hate. It's like a big hate. Is that I constantly come back to thinking, and I don't know if this is naive or what, but like we could have like reimagined or create a new digital world. Like we literally were part of the creation of the internet in this generation, and we ended up somehow replicating or amplifying the bullshit that exists in the social world. I mean, it's no surprise because again, like our creations are kind of a reflection of who we are, whether it's individually or as a society. But that's the one thing is like, it's similar to what we were talking in the sci-fi episode, right? Like you can write whatever you want, invent this thing anew. And again, you choose to go for like white supremacist tropes, uh, misogyny and shit like that. Like that irks me at a level that I'm not sure if it's fair because I don't know if I'm too naive in thinking that this could have been better. At some point, people used to say back in the day, like in the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog kind of in, in uh, as a way to kind of say that you could be anonymous and you would not be judged based on anything that the outside world would judge you in or judge you for. But now, like, the internet not only knows you're a dog, they know, like, what you eat and, like, you know, <laughs> the the dog toys you use and everything. So <laughs> it's I just don't, I just don't like that. The one thing that I do love, though, and I think when I first was kind of confronted with this question was um, around March 8th, which is International Women's Day. And I was seeing all the energy around women's rights, feminism, pro-choice 
stuff happening in particularly in Latin America and the amount of connection and awesomeness that I've been able to witness from places that I you know I grew up in and I never in a million years I would have never imagined to see hundreds of thousands of women like taking the streets and just expressing the rage and the joy of uh, of being in this fight together and just like the, like without the internet I would have not had it's something very special to me right because again it's um I'm witnessing places that I never considered you know safe actually like but just seeing the 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 women and the queers and the intersection between those two um just take to the streets and take to the to the internet and kind of become present there just like with the green wave as they say like with the green bandanas and the purple bandanas and stuff um that became symbols for that movement i don't know it's just it just gives me so much joy in such a simple way um similar to what you were saying about instagram looking at cool art is just like sometimes in instagram looking at the coolest ways other people are taking up space and reclaiming the right to live and to uh, live in peace and safety it's it's the awesomest thing so pet love it's that connection and i i just helps me imagine what's possible because it's happening somewhere else so yeah that's <laughs> that's my my pet stuff that's amazing yeah i totally agree with you I think you're right about that thing about claiming space. That's just, you know, there are all these different ways in which the internet does feel like it's oppressive, you know, both in the structures of government, that watching, the lack of consent, all of that kind of structural stuff that we talk about. And then there's individual things like harassment and abuse online. But I think that over and over again, people find ways to reclaim space in a really powerful, stubborn, brilliant, persistent way that like over and over again, people will create different ways to do that. And I think that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. And I mean, we both touched a little bit on like the things we're able to see through the internet. And I really wanted to ask you, do you think the internet has a gaze? Does it look back at you? Um, and if so, how? And I'm not talking you know, specifically about like the obvious things that you already mentioned about like, yeah, Amazon Ring would literally look back at you, but like more in terms of the gaze of the internet um, as a medium. What do you think? This is such a good question. Like, right now it's just so brilliant. <sighs> I mean, it's a really tricky question also. I spent a lot of time trying to think about this because I think to me there are two different ways I'm thinking about that like how it feels to be seen on the internet. That's how I'm taking that kind of gaze. And also the way the internet expects you to look at it, like in return. Yeah. So I was thinking about like how it feels to be seen on the internet and that a lot of the time it's really dangerous to be seen. So that gaze is one that is quite controlling. So it's dangerous to be seen in the way that what you were just saying about on the internet no one knows if you're a dog used to be a phrase but in reality it's safer if it assumes that you're a guy it's safer if you don't have a picture of a woman or especially a woman of color as your avatar because then you're more likely to get harassed right so there's that thing of if you are truly seen you're more likely to get bullied and then i was thinking about other ways of which that there's there's this being seen is dangerous if you're an activist or you're any kind of 
person who you really actually need to have your identity kept secret. But there's also just this thing about normativity and the patriarchy that I was thinking about where we're expected to be a certain way in order to be taken seriously. So there's all that stuff we talked about in the beauty episode about selfies. So selfies are a way to show ourselves and they're a really great expression. But at the same time, which we already talked about, taking selfies was seen as frivolous and it's a thing teen girls do. And if you take loads of selfies, you can't be expected to take it to yourself seriously. So if you have an account where you talk about politics and you take loads of selfies, then should people really listen to what you have to say? So I was thinking about, is also this kind of male gaze that I think it does have, this gaze about seriousness and the risk of being seen, like the alternative to that would be a freedom to be silly. Hmm. Tell me more about that. Because I often feel like, even in my own Twitter, I know that I'm controlling what I'm expressing about myself, fundamentally. That I silo different parts of my personality. Shout out to Foucault again, yeah. another sponsor of the pot. <laughs> he would love it. Um, because I want people to read my writing and listen to this podcast and take my ideas about consent and security labor seriously. If I post too much about all the like ridiculous things that I do, or just fun things that I do, you know, cosplay, <laughs> computer games, then I feel that would make me be taken less seriously but right. that does piss me off and i loved like rookie mag did you ever read rookie mag nope it was a magazine by teen girls 14 girls on the internet oh and it was so before good. teen vogue um i mean parallel to teen vogue but like f- fully just made by teenagers that's so cool and it's like it's aesthetic was so 100 percent teen girl aesthetic you know, it's glitter and it's pastels and it's photographs that are like pasted on top of each other, like magazine style and mood boards and ridiculous questions and dreams and fantasies. And I knew I was too old for it even when I was reading it in my 20s, you know, but I just loved it because it was so authentic and like all of those things, like being smart and asking really great questions and having really thoughtful essays and also not being afraid to at the same time be ridiculous and fun and glittery and like unicorns. And I think that the internet generally punishes that and wants you to only be one thing. And it would be great if we could be all of those things. Yeah, I think one of the things that I really like about that is the thing that you say about when we're talking about the gays is how does it feel to be seen? I think usually when we talk about gays, it's like, oh, it's, uh, you know, the male gaze basically obliterates women or objectifies, but we not as often talk about how does it feel to be gazed at through the male gaze? <clears throat> it truly sucks. And uh, yeah, just noting that. Yeah, and I think there are other things that it made me think about, about like pop-up porn and stuff, you know, which assumes you're a guy most of the time. And I think there are lots of things in which the internet defaults you to male, but... In a way, I can't be mad at the internet for that because that's society, you know? That default maleness isn't unique to the internet. It's just a thing that we all have to fucking cope with right now. Well, and it's the the chicken or egg thing, right? Like, if you assume your audience is male, then you create things that cater a bit more to that demographic, which in turn attracts that demographic more and just creates this cycle of, I mean, self-reinforcing cycle of, of... 
uh, production of content, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, that's the the fun thing with the podcast is we're definitely not assuming a male gaze. Or uh, what's a male listening? Wait, what's the what's the ears for gaze? Is the there a e- word for uh, that? <laughs> what's the ears ooh, for gaze? Um, and the ears for gaze. I was just like, what? <laughs> I get it. Um, the like... The listening? The, the focus... There should be a word for like focus listening. Mm. Yeah. Well, because... I mean, well, I guess, but yeah, focusing that's... is listening is seen as more passive than looking, isn't it? Yeah, like, which looking is, is weird. Seen as, like I'm looking at you, it seems aggressive, but in fact, it's just receiving information in the same way that listening is receiving information. Why is that? What the fuck? That's true. Hmm. Listeners, <laughs> welcome to the behind the scenes. This is how episodes are made. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. To be looked at, literally, it's almost it's almost to be consumed, but to be heard is not. I don't know. But at the same time we say I want to be seen when we say we want to be recognized. We, Although we also say I want to be heard. Yeah. But I think it is weird. I mean, of, you know, the whole like the, the male gaze thing does come from theory around cinema and film studies. And it's about like who is looking and watching a film. And then we apply it to lots of other stuff about how we look at each other. But perhaps assuming that there's some aggression there. I think there's, there's a... Well, there's the concept of the female gaze, isn't it? I don't know. It'd be just interesting to apply that to other senses. Yes. I'll think more about that. That's, that's a good question. So picking up on this thing about female listening and feminist depictions and gazes of the internet... What do you think of the term feminist internet? I don't know if you've seen it around a lot, but I've definitely seen it used by many different groups, sort of, you know, capitalizing feminist and internet. Do you like it as a phrase? And do you think it's useful? I mean, do I like it? I Yeah, I think I love it. I start loving it just from the outset because of the question it asks, which is like, what do you mean by feminist uh, internet, right? Like, even that question kind of leads you to think about what the internet is and it's not. Um, Because I think as long as we need the modifier or like the adjective, the feminist part of it, I think it will be a term that I hope questions and challenges the internet without adjectives, which is, as we've been talking so far, very male case-like, very... It's just like a replica of the, of the norm, and if uh, patriarchy and the male gaze is the norm, then feminist internet is what's not. And that's where like the pockets of interesting stuff, to me, starts happening, right? <clears throat> but again, like yeah, recognizing that there are many feminisms and forms of feminism, for me that's a little bit, um, I don't want to say beyond scope, because it's not, I hope and I assume that the, the term feminist internet is less prescriptive, and less like about what it is as an authority you should meet these requirements to call yourself feminist or to call your work part of the feminist internet and so less prescriptive and more just like a um, goal or a dream or a no like a question mm. literally um less what you should be and more like a buffer of like thinking what you're trying to accomplish with which values are you going to conduct yourself and your projects and yeah i think it's it's precisely because of that i think this whole thing about trying to find absolute um definitions and a lot of it comes from academia yes which is also very normative kind of prevents us from enjoying and learning a lot from the questions that that come like for me sometimes the questions are more interesting than the absolute answers and 
when I'm asked, you know, what's a feminist internet or do you like it? I'm like, that's why I like it, because it leads to us expanding upon what's there right now. And because it says feminism, <clears throat> it gives us a very solid, like, north star about what we're discussing. We're discussing equality, autonomy, all of the other intersections that, that come with it. So, so yeah, yeah. Ten yeah. thumbs up for feminist internet. Do you, do you like it? What do you think? Uh, I really like what you just said about it. And I think it possibly changes the way I was thinking about it. Um, How so? Well, because I think sometimes I see people trying to brand it. And I think that does annoy me. You know, I think... There are people who are saying like we're there's there's like the feminist internet collective or like a feminist internet group of scholars or a feminist internet project and there's many many organizations who have kind of taken it and are doing different things with that naming and I like I like the inspiration like you I like doing different things with that idea I don't like anyone trying to own it because you can't own feminism you know you can't call yourself the feminist group but if you're calling yourself a feminist group then that's great and i think we should just have more of that more different ways of thinking about it but yeah i think because feminism just contains so many different things there can't just be a defined feminist internet so i really like what you actually said about thinking of it as a question and I hadn't got to that point before, so I like it a lot. Yeah, well, and also I have it in my notes just to be like, for fuck's sake, protect it from pink washing, though. And it's basically what you just said, right? Like, if Nike can come up and have feminist shoes, we have to be very careful, not for Nike, but for ourselves, just to be like, okay, let's not just dismiss then feminism altogether. If we accept that there is no authority dictating what feminism is or isn't, then if Nike decides to brand a product with it, they're basically, hopefully, inviting us as an audience to challenge them on it and to ask questions. And this is not like internet backlash or cancel culture or, or that bullshit, but like literally just like, oh, what what do you mean by that? We do want to know about how you produce this product. We do want to know about why. We do want to know what study, because it's very interesting, that you made to understand that the market all of a sudden is okay with it. That's useful information for us to have. So it's almost like this less about a, the authoritative you know the definition of what it is and more about like this is a question yeah that's yeah and generally if i see something that says it's to do with feminist internet i love it because it's in my world you know it's it's all of these cool projects that i love and excited by and if you check out that hashtag on twitter there is a lot of really interesting stuff to look at from all over the world yeah go check it out um so let's talk a little bit about resistance on that same note like what gives you life or inspires you in the context of internet resistance or internet freedom like for example just to to tell you where i'm coming from with this Mm -hmm. uh sometimes i get a bit bummed out by how certain like pockets of resistance we can call it that still feel pretty know-how elite like i'm a genius i like matrix screens sort of um, or very broy, and I'm also also talking about like you know U.S. politics and stuff like that. Even when in theory you agree with the sentiment, the left, the politics, it's still like it's still broy as fuck, or entitled as fuck, or, or white as fuck. So, what gives you life though? What what pockets of resistance inspire you at the moment? Or the first thing that came to mind for me was last summer when I went to I went to the screening of The Great Hack and. There was a panel afterwards with the journalist and the lawyer who broke the story. And 
it was also moderated by Caroline Sinders, who put on this exhibition at the Tate Modern. And there was hardly anyone in the screening for the film. And I was just like, oh dear, this isn't great. And then there was so many people who came for that panel afterwards. I mean, Mm. you know, like 150 people. It just filled the room. And it was a really diverse crowd of people, probably the most diverse crowd of people I've ever seen at a tech-related event. And people asked inspiring, interesting questions. And I was just like, oh my God, where have these people been? But also, where have we been doing it wrong? You know, every time when Mm -hmm. I was trying to organize events in the past and it was just mostly white bros. And there are all these people who are curious. That gave me so much hope. Like people do care about this stuff. There's this perception that, oh, nobody's really interested. It's so hard to explain privacy. No, right? People were outraged about the Cambridge Analytica thing and they wanted to talk to the experts and they did it in a place that was welcoming and open to the public and interesting in an exhibition organized by a woman. So all of that was just like a reminder that there are loads of people who were interested and I loved that. And then I started really thinking about how much, I've got to go, kind of go back to art but there are tons of people doing really interesting stuff to do with digital rights. This just seems quite separate from all of the NGOs and that kind of stuff. And I was reading recently about this woman called Kate Bertash, who designs anti-surveillance wear. So she makes dresses that have license plate printed all over them, which <laughs> means that the cameras that can read number plates... Um, and that they use those to find out where cars are and stuff. And that's like, it's called automated number plate recognition. FYI, if you ever see a sign that says A and P are operating in this area, that's what it stands for. And it really annoys me that there are road signs that say that, that have an acronym that doesn't explain what it means. Ah, anyway, so she designed dresses that confuse them and has a bunch of other things that she's designed as well. But she comes from campaigning around abortion access. So she was talking about how people who were... Uh, working in healthcare and people who were trying to get abortions were having people photograph them outside the healthcare center and she was really worried about what they were doing with that information and that they were tracking people and trying to find out where abortion providers lived and came up with all of this stuff in response to that it's just a totally different origin story for people who are working as lawyers in a human rights space, even though those people are also cool and doing good work. I think things like that, that remembering that people come at this work from very different places and people are really curious and they do want to know more about their rights and they do have cool ideas for different ways of doing it are always things that inspire me. Yeah, reminds you that tech and the internet are, cannot be separate from human rights. You know, human rights will be protected or violated through technology as well. And it's really cool to see that people come from all different areas of of life um, and are literally interested in in this this little aspect of the bigger picture. Yeah, I once went to a literature festival that was all about responding to tech and what's going on in the world. And some of it was about science fiction, some of it was like contemporary writing. And I was like wait, there's this whole other space. Like, it's yet another space where there's all these people who know one another and are making art and are inviting people into a conversation and having Q&As and they're in this space. And there's there's just, like, a lot of spaces and it's really easy to go through and only see one or two things and think 
that's what people are doing in response to this or like that's where the resistance is or that's where the activism is and I get really energized when I think about how much stuff I still don't know about. So I've been thinking about this thing a lot because it's something I really struggle with balancing personally which is this whole conversation about how we should try and listen to opinions that we disagree with, fundamentally. So to explain a little bit what I mean, there's been lots of stuff and information about how we're in these kind of algorithmic silos on our social media, in our news. What we see on Facebook is different because of what we've liked. What we see on Twitter is different because of who we follow. What we see on Google News is different because of what we've searched. And everyone gets these curated sources of information, which means we tend to see stuff we already agree with, right? So there's a school of thought that says we should really need to challenge that because if we don't see opinions that are different from us, we get more and more extreme. And there's lots of stuff that's looked at how that works with YouTube, with the algorithms, like you just kind of get in an extremist spiral. And that works on both political sides or all political sides. You kind of get the worst opinions because it's outrage, it's clickbait, etc. Which we kind of talked about in our outrage episode. So I see I see this argument that says we need to go out and search for things that we disagree with, to challenge ourselves, to make sure our feeds are not so extreme. And that's good for us intellectually, right? But on the other hand, as we also said, seeking out controversy and pain isn't good for us, and often it tends to just <laughs> reinforce what we feel when you see something yeah. that we fundamentally disagree with. If I read something written by a turf, I'm not suddenly going to agree with them. I'm just going to be annoyed. Yeah. So, in that realm of balancing, what do you think uh-huh. looking to be challenged means for you? That's no, that's very interesting. I think, I mean, well, first, I think the whole idea of like diversifying yeah. sources and or like what we consume on, on the internet, sometimes I have to like stop a little bit and because it's a little bit weird because we're still in the framework of production and consumption it's almost like corporations put or or individuals like tariffs and stuff put stuff out and then we consume it and then we have to like almost taste different things and but for me to have a healthy quote-unquote we can call it healthy consumption like media consumption I don't think it has only to do in terms of which sources we get, because people are like, read the New York Times and The Economist and The Wall Street. But I think a big piece that's missing here is who we process the information with. And that is, for me, what a lot of the diversify your sources conversation is missing. Because like, let's be real, news, quote unquote news, or news have always had editorial bias like that's mm-hmm. that's something that it has always been there you know this is not controversial or unknown the news have to keep the interest of the the advertisers in mind and we all know that journalists are constantly being censored um shout out to run Farrow who for like great podcast that uh, catch and kill right and mm-hmm. that's it's a amazing. companion to the book uh, that explores a little bit about all the censorship that went uh, surrounding him carrying out that work. So it's not just about what sources or what things we literally consume, but I think for me is who we process this information with. And I think that's um, just talking about different forms of consumption as if we were just individuals not living in a society without friends. Like, like, talk to your friends. Talk to people at work. Um, because that is 
what literally gives you a diversity of, of perspectives, not even opinions. Everybody has a different life and they go through it in a very different way, depending on how, you know, where they're born, everything. Like, so, so I just want to kind of like get that point very clear. It's not about consuming different things. It's also like who we process things. We basically get friends and co-workers and talk about things, learn to talk, learn to not argue because again th i think it's a very patriarchal thing to think that's it's everything is an argument and a debate it's like hey i am sharing this um what do you think did you see this you know just just oh yeah i um i pet hate is people who say let's debate this or i want to have a debate with you about this yeah Ugh. and i don't know the tldr is information should not just be between the screen and you it has to be processed with friends with co-workers and yeah that's not you know a recipe for all of a sudden being healthy and diverse and shit but like i think it's it's missing a lot like just talking to one another and it, it goes hand in hand to like the second part of your question which is like what does it mean to be challenged um it's sometimes like to be challenged evokes a bit of conflict or fights or it's not my experience generally but i keep coming back to the idea of friends like many a time including you know with you I bring a question I'm like I don't know how I feel about this or I don't know why in theory I understand what this is about like you know a fight for something a law or a bill but I mean that quote-unquote other side has this one point how how do we wrestle with it because I am not completely ready to dismiss it and then we talk about it and then I'm just like ha huh. Yeah, I understand it better, you know, but it's not like I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right. Um, and for me, that's the, the challenge doesn't come from diversifying the things that I consume, but from the people I process this with. So um, I don't know, I think I would encourage people to cultivate an environment where they have these chats and they're not like lectures or anything. It's literally just shitting. No, not shitting. Shooting the shit. There you go. Um, and we're processing the world together. That's that's a beautiful way to to look at it. And if we do this together, we're a lot more resilient to bullshit. That's literally designed to convince us otherwise of of, of other things. Um, if we process the world together, like in a critical way, we're not absolutely safe, but safer from policies and things that come from fear to take over. Um, because again. Listen to the outrage episode. A lot of these things use panic, fear, and anxiety to get you to do awful things. Mm. So, um, so yeah. <laughs> does, that. does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. It's funny because I think it means applying a lot of how I already think about conversations in reverse, like back to the news articles. You know, because as I said, I really hate it when people are like, we should have a debate about this. And I'm just like, what? there's no point scoring in a conversation. I don't like the idea that everything is set up for a winner and a loser. And I often will say to people, I don't want to have a debate, but we can have a chat. And yet somehow I was still thinking about that debate framework when it comes to reading the news, like as though I should read something I disagree with so I can have some kind of mental debate with the piece. Yeah. But actually, I think it's taking that same conversation framework, perhaps like what you're saying, you know, it's not just about what we read, it's who we read it with. And yet also thinking about that with the pieces that I'm reading, that they're just part of a conversation of what else is out there. It's not needing to find stuff that's going to just push my buttons. I think that was yeah. really, really interesting. So I was listening to the podcast Imaginary Worlds, which is about fantasy worlds and how we create them and why. And they did an episode on The Good Place. 
and spoke to one of the philosophers who had been really instrumental in all the kind of thinking on the show, all the teaching of philosophy that happens. And he was talking about the central idea of that show being that people are what make each other better, that everyone has the chance to be a better person if they're surrounded by the right people and that it's connections and community with one another that make ourselves better people and that that's Mm. the central kind of answer to everything is to have great communities and when I was listening to it I was like his idea that being around people makes you a better person I also was like well not if you're around assholes it has to be the right people but essentially yes I can really really get on board for that and side point um The Good Place is an amazing show yeah I I have it in my list to check it out I've heard really good things about it too um but I think what you say kind of brings me to like this question that I wanted to ask you about similarly to the to the gaming episode when we said like apparently there is there's choice but the choices are given to you um in a, in a game in a video game sometimes i think we are stuck we think we have the choices but we don't have the complete picture of what's possible and again discussing things with friends or like just talking to people sometimes gives you like a different perspective and a different imaginary to draw from because you're like oh yeah i never it's like one of those mental games like oh I didn't think that uh, you could also, I don't know, lift the thing and then the solution was under the glass. I don't know. Anyways, what I wanted to say is, what do you think it's missing from the current internet imaginary? Like sometimes, again, I think we're stuck in the old imaginaries of mysterious hackers and Matrix-style screens and the dude in the basement. What's missing? Yeah. And I think this is my last question to you. Oh, gosh. To, um, to leave you with, with this, what is missing from the internet imaginaries? So I think for me, some of it is what I was saying earlier about being silly, mm. um, which I hadn't really been thinking about before. But I think there's a lot of room for... I think that all of the stuff that's how we depict the internet with what you're describing doesn't really make any sense because it's trying to depict things that are intangible a lot of the time. You know, it's trying to depict code or connections and things things that we can't really see but actually everything that we talk about all the time here is that what matters is people right Mm -hmm. and everything that happens on the internet affects us as people you know we've talked about that consent or that bodily impact and all the rest of that so I no longer see why that kind of stuff is relevant you know we shouldn't just be depicting things relating to people who are real in all the different ways that people are real as much as possible. That's my kind of first thing. And yeah, my second thing is that a very kind of simple graphic design thing in a way, which is that we need to be colorful and sparkly and bright and interesting and all of those kind of things that I think sometimes are missing from talking about this stuff in a very kind of grim color palette. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think I, this reminds me a lot. I mean, two things um, reminds me of the, the internet Freedom Festival. Uh, I think I recommend people to check it out. They cancelled this year's uh, festival because of of, uh, COVID-19. Anyways, IFF, the Internet Freedom Festival, one thing that I really love about them is that their design, their aesthetic, their visual language is always challenging the norm of what an internet and tech conference looks like. It's really beautiful. And what was used to, what was going to be used this year, if I have it correctly, there's like this, just imagine, I think it was like this yellowy background with like this purple figure that's almost like a wizard or a witch. And I'm like, witches and wizards on the internet in pastel colors or like non-black colors. Like, it was just such a beautiful image of of what's 
possible. Like I've also heard, um, and I wish I could find this this post. I think probably was on Tumblr about women um, and code. And like, oh, do you have or maybe it's a Twitter thing? You have women friends. They're not coders. They're witches. They control machines with the word. They know the exact spells to make machines do whatever they need them to do to help other people. And I'm like, yes, this like it's just again, it's like a image from elsewhere it's not like the hacker dude it's like and I, I remember sending this to some people who work uh some women who work with code and i'm like you're literally you're the definition of a witch you know casting spells and things happen like it's it's the awesome i don't know just imagine if we had these uh, narratives or these imaginaries in high school um, which i'm sure there there are some of, of these some of these things in there but like I think it would open the door again. We can imagine different futures if we have current different ways to approach the present. And I think it's, uh, yeah, that's one of the things that I think is missing from the current internet imaginary. Yeah. Oh my God. You were just making me think so many things that I love about how Internet Freedom Festival does get it right. Like one, the t-shirt that we got last year with the tiger on it is probably one of my favorite t-shirts. I wear that all the time. I use the bag with the bat all the time. They're sponsored by glitter, eco-friendly glitter, and everyone just puts glitter on their face at a conference. Fantastic. And I remember I went to a session that opened with a tarot reading and to put us into workshop groups, we were assigned by our Hogwarts houses. And I was just like, this is what it feels like to be at a tech conference where it is not about like a bunch of dudes as the default. Like you go into that room and there was no expectation of who that group would be. Like it just felt so welcoming and fun. Yeah. And they had protocols for consent. Do you want to be photographed or not? You were read the like you were read the privacy policy before you even step into the conference room like instead of just like signing this long thing in the end and just saying i accept someone literally read it to you <laughs> it was like it was fascinating anyways yeah yeah shout out to iff we're not I sponsored you're doing by well them. no but they they show but us they love have, but they they are good friends of the pod yeah. Um, do you have a last question for me or? Yeah. Okay. So one thing that I love about you and I think is an amazing, important skill to have in this time is your bullshit radar. Uh-huh. And it's so good to go through this life being able to have one. How would you advise other people cultivating such a thing? Um, I think we already touched a little bit on, on this, but um, first thing is a bullshit radar is hard. It is really, really hard. That's why it's so successful. Um, so the first thing to know for everyone, and this I have to shout out to our awesome facilitators um, this week who came to work and uh, taught us about the internet, was that if you fall for, bu- for bullshit or if you fall for something, it's not your fault. You know, it is designed, bullshit in general is designed to get you to do something without your consent. That's why they're trying to trick you. And uh, be it the news or just someone trying to fish you or uh, and phishing is when someone sends you a link like, hey, reset your password and it looks like Google, but it's not Google so they can get your password. Anyways, so first thing, bullshit is really hard to detect. That's why it works. And if you have fallen for it, we've all have fallen for some sort of myth or uh, how do you call that uh, conspiracies or something it's hard especially in times of of uh, in tough times i don't want to say times of crisis but like you know anything with stress we already live in a capitalist society that puts undue stress on us add a little bit of virus and hmm. so know that 
But I don't know why I keep coming back to friendships and cultivating this inner, outer, I don't know, this circle of people around you. Cultivate close, intimate relationships. Uh, friends, you know, friends that talk to one another about about life. Um, I've heard, I might be wrong, but I've heard, like, for example, um, in a very male patriarchal culture, you know, if you go on Reddit, they're like, how come my, my husband doesn't have any male friends? And if they do, they don't know anything about one another. Just like, again, everything that you consume should not be between the screen and you. It has to be processed in community, you know, with your choice of friends. And that's where a lot of the bullshit detection happens. It's literally more brains thinking about it and more brains bringing their perspective and their radars to to look at something. So that's one. And the second thing is like, I think the internet shouldn't be the first time you think out loud about something. So be careful uh, when someone seems to be doing that. You know, hot takes, just random venting that happens unfiltered, which, you know, there's space for that. But like, just get some friends sometimes to like, vet what you, um, what you're processing. Does that make sense? I think I'm just like rambling in, in, in a, an answer that was very similar to the previous one um, because um, good people call your bullshit and that's how you learn <laughs> sometimes it's just good advice i mean i think there is different ways of different there are different types of bullshit like there's the this person's giving me weird vibes do you get uh-huh. those vibes kind of bullshit oh, all the time and then again that's really nice if there's someone else you can just check in don't keep it to yourself and yep. then there's the like i'm reading something and something doesn't seem quite right to me and I'm gonna look up something else. I'm gonna find some other sources. I'm gonna double check it. And I started this thing a couple of years ago where I keep a document where I write every time I fell for something. It's just a Google mm. Doc called Things That I Fell For. And wow. I kind of self assess. I go, okay, like what is the kind of stuff that fools me? So then I can pay more attention next time I see something along those lines that's a really good practice yeah no that's a that's a really good practice because it's again we all fall for stuff i think my my other piece of advice and it's something that i need to follow myself too is insert a bit of a buffer of time between witnessing consuming or experiencing something and if you can like insert the buffer of time between that like the input and your action just so you have a little bit of like am i reacting to this or am i actually taking like for example if you have a bad vibe from from a person don't dismiss it right away sometimes the action i was gonna say like sometimes the action is to dismiss it i'm like ah i'm just being crazy like no just just take it in and be like hmm uh i need to hear this weird vibe is there yep it's there you know what, I'm just going to politely remove myself from the situation or impolitely, I'm just going to leave, you know, instead of just shutting it down. I don't know. That's a good question. I think it's a skill to practice like anything else, basically. You get you get good at it with time. Yeah. Anyway, so that's been an interview. Our uh, back and forth for our second anniversary. I hope we didn't ramble too much. I hope people got something out of this. What do you think? Yeah, um, happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday. To follow tradition, um, is there anything in particular that you would like to take with you? I made a note. Okay, yes. So I really like that thing that you were just saying about being challenged and that it's not just what you read, it's who you read it with. And 
I like that it reminded me of when we did our episode on parenting. This episode is also giving a lot of call-outs to past conversations, but in the episode on parenting, you used this phrase, we're all in the business of raising children, when you were talking about that part of which it's society, not just parents who raise children, that we all have responsibilities, even if we don't have children of our own. And it made me think that in a way, that same responsibility applies here too. Like, that it's not just about us going out and having conversations about things that we've read, but we are the people that other people have conversations with. Like, we're all in the business of being in society, of improving society, and having those kind of critical conversations, and being there for our friends to have those conversations. That's why I also thought about And that was Hmm. a really inspiring thing that you said. So thank you. Thank you. What about you? Are you taking anything away? Yeah, this whole conversation. No, it was really cool to go through this exercise and... uh... I think, I mean, there are a lot of things that I I will come back to. I think I really like the whole idea of reflecting on what it feels like to be seen and to have that as a point of departure to see like, huh, what's next? What could be different? Like imagine different, just, just to exist within different imaginaries. That's That's something that I am craving a lot and I, it gives me so much life similarly to like what what gives you life um in terms of pockets of resistance and stuff i'm literally finding that it's it's that it's different languages and by imaginaries i mean like a set of concepts and thing or and symbols and and things that allow us to literally imagine different possibilities futures presence so that I'm, I'm taking a lot of that like i think it's it's really cool to have that and i hope that producing stuff like this um contributes to other people imagining different presence because they are very possible this was this was really good it was a great idea it was a really good good episode uh we'll be back to regular episodes after this but yeah in the meantime where can people find all of our episodes all of the two years worth of episodes ruth the intersection of things.com yep and if they want to tweet at us they can do so at things intersect the music is by david mark hucklesby and if you want to be found where can people find your work and yourself? i am on twitter at Nessient, N-E-S-I-E-N-T, and you can also find a link to all of my articles and writing on there as well. Cool. And what about you? Where can you be found on the days that you wish to be found? Uh, only <laughs> every once in a while, <laughs> at, at Undazed and Such on Twitter. Yeah, just follow follow the Things Intersect Twitter account, that's better. Um, cool. Anything else? As always, it would be great if you left us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find us and slash or give a recommendation to a friend say that they should check us out because we'd love to get more of you yeah wait that sounded kind of creepy we don't we say get we just mean more listeners it's no creepy way yeah no we're gonna share this with people who might be interested in this you know tell people about us cool all right until next time bye bye